This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Krista Bilton has a story to tell. Her extraordinary memoir, Normal Family, on truth, love, and how I met my 35 siblings, tells the story of growing up with a lesbian single mother, Deborah, who struggled to provide for her and her sister while fighting battles with substance abuse and mental health. But that is only half her mother's tale. Deborah was also a pioneer for LGBTQ families, making her presence felt in nearly every corner of cultural and political life in L.A. and in the country at large. Normal Family is also the story of Jeffrey, Krista's biological father, chosen on a whim to be a sperm donor when her mother randomly encounters him. Jeffrey will come in and out of Krista's life, sometimes with stories of success and positivity, others in a state of seeming decay, living from paycheck to paycheck, unsteady and uncertain. His monetary issues will be temporarily solved when he becomes donor 150, a regular sperm donor at a sperm bank where his donations come along with a partly false narrative of the perfect surrogate father. Many people struggling to have a child will find something magical in his story. At first glance, this propulsive and compelling memoir appears to be the story of a revelation of the appearance very suddenly of 35 siblings in Krista's life, each a donor child produced by one of Jeffrey's DNA samples. But while that is a startling event in a life, the root and beauty of this true story is Krista's resilience, her fight to overcome the chaos of her early life 
and to claim for herself a new genre of family, one built from the building blocks of DNA, but also out of kinship, friendship, and love. It is a narrative that begins and ends with a dedication to truth as the only way to properly account for one's life. Assuredly, you will be drawn in by her account of a wild and unpredictable childhood, but the meaningfulness of this memoir comes in its conclusions about who we love and sacrifice for, and how that, more than any single spectacular event, shapes us into who we become. Normal Family is Krista's first book. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Krista Bilton. Oh my gosh, thank you for that beautiful introduction. This book knocked my socks off. It's beautifully written. It's I, I came into it sort of knowing a bit the, the the major reveal. I mean, it's right on the front cover, but it is extraordinary how much other surprise and delight and chaos and just wonder there was in your childhood. As a rule, I, I think memoirs tend to be quite revealing of personal details. I would venture to say that yours is on the far end of that spectrum, revealing extraordinary secrets and revelations about your family and your many families. How did you decide you wanted to share all of this deeply personal history? And did you worry that family and friends might be hurt by that decision? Yeah, I think that I think that was the big question about whether I would write the book or not was because I worried tremendously about, um, specifically about hurting my mother, because as you say, she's, I mean, you know, she's really the star of the book. Um, and long before I found out about this larger biological family, uh, you know, I wanted to write just the story of me and my mother, uh, because, she, she's just an extraordinary person, original person. But I felt that to tell the story, I had to tell all of it. And a lot of it um, is dark and hard. And, and I love my mom deeply. And we have a very close relationship now, I'm, I'm so happy to say. So, so I struggled for a long time about whether or not to write the book. I had sat down to write it, you know, almost 20 years ago for the first time. It took me that long to, to finally publish it. So yeah, but I... I ultimately felt that I had the sense that she would be okay um, mm -hmm. and maybe even better off after I wrote it finally in the end. I'm glad that I wrote it when I did because now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing it from a very different perspective than when I was younger and perhaps more confused about the events. Your, your mother really is the star, which was unexpected for me. And, and she's extraordinary. She seems to have more passion and more ideas and more ability to make things happen. Uh, than than almost anyone I've ever encountered in a true life story. She certainly feels more out of a movie than she does real life. And yet she was incredibly inconsistent in her care for you, in, in her economic situation. Did you always have a sense that her relationship to you was was different in some way or because it was the water you swam in was this just the normal for you you mean different from the other parents of kids around me is that what yeah you're yeah um i didn't you know i think as kids whatever home environment home environment we're being raised in we we do think that's normal up until a point and then i think 
uh, for me in adolescence uh, is when it really became clear that it was different from from other families. Was there a but, moment that you, you that sort of sticks out or was it a just sort of general accruing of things where you said, hmm, this is a little bit this is a little bit different? Well, there was, this, the, I guess the earliest fact of her sexuality was clear that was always different. So I was, I was aware from a very early age that I was the only child of a gay person um, in my community. You know, I, I moved schools quite a bit because of some of that inconsistency. And, um, but there was only one person I ever encountered in my entire life that uh, was a peer who had a, a gay parent. So growing up, I knew that was different. And I would say that as my mom cycled through shame about that, so did I. So, you know, there was, there's a story I tell in the book when um, my mom had met this new woman, Mommy Faye mm -hmm. is what I came to call her. And she became my second mother and, and we moved in with her and then her three children. And there's a, there's a story where I'm in the McDonald's play lot and uh, and mommy Faye's daughter is with me playing and I'm bragging to another kid that, you know, I'm a very special child because instead of having just one mommy, like most people, I have two. And this new sibling of mine looked at me with this horrible look on her face. She's, I've never seen someone more humiliated or angry. And she told me that that was a humiliating thing to tell someone else and that I could never share that. And that should be our secret. And I think that was really my first experience of shame about, about how different my family was. Now, of course, my family was different in so many ways beyond mm -hmm. my mother's sexuality. But to have a gay parent in the early 90s was a really, um, it, it, it just was not common. You know, my mom was really at the forefront of parenting. Uh, you know, at that time, she, at the time she decided to have kids, she didn't know a single other person, a single other gay person who had had a family. So she was really starting out on her own. Um, she seems untouched by by that shame, at least in your in your reckoning. We don't know her sort of private mind of it, but in in the way you depict her, she seems remarkably able to sort of brush it away. Yeah, it's it is. You know, I think that the shame is there, but I think it's so hidden in all kinds of uh, ways that she deals with it that, yeah, it becomes, it, it doesn't seem to be very apparent. You know, we, we've actually argued about that because I do believe that she has some shame, you know, when she talks about her early experiences coming out and mm -hmm. she didn't even know the word lesbian existed when she first had feelings for women, just to give you some context. Of what oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't have, you know, language to describe what what she was or feeling. Um, and the only film that she had ever seen, you know, as an adolescent, um, was a movie called The Children's Hour. I don't know if you remember that that film. I, but, I don't. Um, it's with Audrey Hepburn and I think Shirley MacLaine. And uh, it's two school teachers who potentially just have a closer relationship than is quote unquote normal. And then one of the kids starts a rumor around school that they are in a, in a love relationship. And at the end of the film, one of the two women kills themselves. So that's the only depiction oh my gosh. of being gay that my mom <laughs> what a had. Great, what a great model. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was just a very different time to grow up for sure. But, but there was more that was different about my family, certainly, than just my mother's sexuality.
Well, yes. And, and I mean, just to name of a, a, a few of the things that she was instrumental in, in having an effect on, she changed Ross Perot's stance on LGBTQ people in his cabinet. I, I, my, my jaw sort of dropped in the, in, in the moment that you described that scene, which you, uh, you do so beautifully. Mm. She apparently palled around with Warren Beatty. She was a fixture in a number of cults, including the um, Rajanish movement with its guru Osho, which I imagine quite a few listeners will have um, learned about via, I think it was a Netflix documentary. And she had major relationships with really the kind of like lesbian glitterati of, of LA, moving sometimes from fancy house to fancy house with you and your sister. I wonder what it was like trying to document that and and think about your mother as as both having you know had periods of real inconsistency in in your life but also being this remarkable change agent and a and really a kind of uh, a, a culture figure a cultural figure of great meaning at that time hmm yeah, some people, a couple of readers have compared her to a Forrest Gump because she just somehow landed in the middle of all of these really important <laughs> moments. Um, but she, yeah, I would say that the most difficult thing about writing the book was selection of stories because hmm. for every story I told, there were 10 other ones that wound up on the cutting room floor. Um, for example, when my mom was nine months pregnant with me, she almost become an became an informant for the feds in the Rajanish story. And just the story of her going to his commune at that moment when she's pregnant with me, it it was this rich, colorful, suspenseful story, but then it just didn't make it in. So I would say the, the most difficult thing about t the book was just how, which stories to tell that would, that would make for a cohesive whole. Are you going to um, write that separately? Because I want to read that. <laughs> Yeah, may, yes, perhaps. Um, there... That seems like something that, you know, um, a, a great magazine would really want to hear more about. No, that's that's a good idea. There, there's quite a bit that, that maybe will end up into some essays or something. It is remarkable how successful you have been and that this book exists at all. When you were younger, your mother struggled mightily with addiction to drugs and alcohol. And on occasion, she would really check out of parental responsibilities, either because of the accompanying depression or substance abuse itself. You tell of taking your car out on the LA freeway as a 15-year-old with your 10-year-old sister in tow. Could you read a small section of the book about one of those times and your relationship with the Moose Crew? Sure, absolutely. With my mother checked out, I began getting into some trouble, spending time with a group of older boys I'd met at a skate shop who went by the collective name, the Moose Crew, as they liked to crash private school parties with a loud moose call to announce their arrival. <laughs> the Moose Crew had guns, dabbled in drug dealing, and stole cars from car dealerships. I had started to drink, like all my other friends at the time, but I'd stayed away from drugs, including weed, because my mother always told me I had an addictive personality, and I believed her. Still, I was attracted to people who partook in dangerous, illegal behavior, even if I wasn't partaking. One afternoon, the summer before my sophomore year, I showed up at home in one of a... I showed up at home in one of three brand new stolen white Escalade SUVs, with one car blasting M&M so the entire neighborhood could hear. 
Several boys stepped out, wearing jeans sagging below their butts and giant oversized t-shirts and gold jewelry. But instead of flipping out, my mother opened the front door and, always delighted by youth, invited them all inside with a smile. On my 16th birthday, I woke up to balloons and a sign that read, Happy Retirement. It was only when I pointed out the mistake that my mother realized she'd bought the wrong sign. Caitlin doubled over in laughter like it was the funniest moment thus far in our lives. I was not amused. I opened present after present, looking up at my mother's childlike eyes, and I wondered who she'd borrowed money from or what credit cards she'd maxed out. I wanted to scream and shake her violently for spending what little money she had. She was deep in denial and in a fantasy that we could live an abundant and lavish life, that we were just like the other families at Archer, that the rest of it, the reality, was just details. Caitlin and I started to feel like we lived in an insane asylum, and we wasted no time telling Mom this. In one of her more lighthearted moods, she thought this label was hilarious and began answering the home telephone with a loud, Camarillo Mental Institution, how may I help you? Camarillo was the name of the mental hospital all her friends went to when they were trying to kick heroin and cocaine in the 70s. Thank you so much. Uh, that is so full of just extraordinary moments. And when I think about how young you were, it's all, all the more extraordinary. As you reflected in the writing of this on the regularity with which your mother left you to your own devices and put you and your sister in situations economically or otherwise that were quite dangerous, was it difficult to still feel sympathy for her, even as you became better aware of what was behind that negligence? Hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, I, it was never hard for me to find sympathy for my mom. If anything, I just because her, I think part of it is the fact that I'm, I wrote it now, you know, if I had written it 10 or 15 years ago, I think I was still so confused about what was happening and, you know, confused about my feelings towards my mother and my father that perhaps a lot of resentment and anger would have come into it. But I've forgiven my mom for a lot. And so I think for me, my biggest fear was just, oh my gosh, if I'm going to tell all this, is the reader going to hate her? <laughs> hmm. uh, that was, that was a, more of a fear. Um, I think it, at this point I saw more comedy in it, but you know, I, I will say that, you know, I narrated the audiobook and, and when I did that, I think just reading it in its entirety, not broken up, maybe that brought up some feelings. Hmm. Do you think about these moments like you're sort of cruising around with this kind of unbelievable crew of uh, ne'er-do-wells? Do, do you think about it just mostly as, as, as comedy uh, or is it, you know, does it scare you in retrospect? Uh, all of the above, I think, you know, I had to speaking about not telling stories. I think that this one chapter originally could have taken up maybe four and it was too much of a roller coaster with just too many things happening. So I just had to pull back a lot. Um, I tried to, you know, with a memoir that deals with some heavy subject matter and there is certainly heaviness in it for anyone who's had a family member that they love, who's had substance abuse problems. I mean, it's heavy and dark. Um, but I wanted, I didn't want the experience of it to be such that it was so much that readers would close it and, and not want to finish the story. You know, there, there was, 
there was a lot of humor in it too. And, and um, a lot of lightness in addition to the dark. So I, I think I just tried to strike a balance between those two things. Hmm. Your, your mother tries her best to involve your biological father, Jeffrey, in your lives while making it very clear that he is just her friend. She was compassionate to him even as his drug use and mental illness became a liability. Could you describe your relationship with Jeffrey and how it evolved over time? Yeah, so I, you know, it, it was only... It was only upon discovering the larger biological family, which I detail, you know, it's much later in the book that that happens. It was only then that I realized that my mother had paid my father to donate sperm. Um, I had always been told that they were two friends who decided to have a kid together. And then even though I knew that I had, I didn't have a typical mother and father because it was primarily my mom and then her girlfriends, and then also this sort of hippie dad that came by once in a while. But I did, you know, she did instill in me that it was my dad. Um, and so not a sperm donor. So I knew him as dad. And that was just my only dad that I knew. And um, he, he was very around in my younger years. And I think his mental illness really hadn't taken a hold as much as it would later. So when I think back to that time, even though I think I had shut shut the door on some of the emotional closeness I had with him, like it, it, it did touch my heart in a deep way, my relationship with my father. And then as I got a little older, because he started to decline more and more, my mom had him around much less. And and so that was hard for me when he would stop coming around. And then eventually he completely disappeared for several years. You know, we understand so much more about mental illness today, but at the time, the vessel my mother understood was drug addiction. So when he fully disappeared from our life, I was just told that he was a drug addict and that's why he had gone away. And so um, it was only upon sort of rekindling my relationship with him as an adult to the extent that he's capable of a relationship that... I've started to understand that the drugs was, you know, I, I think a, a a coping mechanism for something more complicated. Hmm. Jeffrey subsisted for a time by donating sperm to an unregulated sperm bank. Late in this story, you discover that you have many siblings, half brothers and sisters. At first, you have zero interest in adding these strangers into your life, into your family. What changed that for you? And how has an exponentially expanded family changed your life? Hmm. When I when I first discovered it, and it, you know, it was, I think, because I was dealing with trying to understand so much, so many other things about my family, which was so complicated, that the idea of one family member, let alone dozens or many more of them, it was just too overwhelming. And I also thought, you know, I had so much shame about my family of origin and just the fact that, you know, my father was struggling with homelessness. My mother had had been a drug addict. She was gay and I had shame around that. Um, so I think I also thought, oh, no, now there's this other weird thing <laughs> that makes mm. <laughs> even weirder to other people. And and so, you know, I was I was in that sort of state when I learned the information. So I, I just... I just couldn't deal with it. So I, you know, when they reached out to me on Facebook in this group they were starting, I just, um, I just said, thank you so much. You know, thank you so much, but I just don't think I can have a relationship with any of you. And as you said, it, it that was my position for a long time. And then 
it was this, um, you know, I think 10 years later, it was this really miraculous turn of events that brought me in touch with one, um, with one biological sister that just made me suddenly open up to the whole thing. Um, and, and I tell that story in the book cause it is, it's a big shift from, from not wanting anything to do with them to embracing them as, you know, a sort of extended family. I can imagine it was incredibly conflicting. And certainly your your mother had made an all but explicit bargain with with your father that he not do this, that he not donate, and, and that he was meant to be the, the donor just for you and your sister. So did did it feel a little bit like a betrayal of of your mom? You mean did I feel that I was betraying yeah. her? Yeah, um, it did because, yeah, she for you know in her in her sweet twisted mind, I think that she saw my dad as sort of her donor and mm-hmm. her donor only, uh, <laughs> and the father of her children. And um, you know, she called the other kids what I think is pretty comedic. She called them his sperm children, and um, <laughs> she. I, she felt it was this giant betrayal that he had done as if he had been her husband and he had done, you know, secretly had an affair with each one of these parents. That was sort of the emotional, you know, intensity with which she saw these kids. And for whatever reason, it really threatened her idea of whatever our family had been, even if it wasn't conventional. Um, so, so I think there was a sense, you know, when I made the decision, I don't know if subconsciously there was a sense of betrayal protecting her. But when I made the decision not to talk to them, she was thrilled. She said, yes, let's pretend they never existed. This never happened. We're all on board. That's the decision. Great. And when she found out that I was, you know, later in the book, I host this quote unquote reunion um, where a bunch of the siblings come to my house and I meet many of them for the first time. And leading up to that, was a huge emotional roller coaster for my mother um, because it was like meeting all of these, you know, each individual betrayal as, mm. as a standing person. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, it's sort of like in uh, Wizard of Oz, you know, once you, the, you pull back the curtain and it's not that scary, actually. Mm. One question that really resonated for me after reading Normal Family was how trauma is passed down. For example, your grandfather suffered terribly with PTSD from his experience in the military. You recount his horrible nightmares. Do you think that trauma can be inherited? And did your mother possibly inherit it from her father and maybe pass it in some ways down to you? Yeah, I I would say that's the deepest question I'm interested in, that I was interested in exploring in this book. And you know, a big part of my own personal journey, but I think so many people's journeys is uh, understanding what made, like what made our parents, you know, understanding their own traumas and how that, it just, you look at them, you know, there, my mom had these key deep traumas that she never told me about. And it was only much later in life that I discovered them by accident. And it was only in the discovery of them that I was able to understand her and really forgive her for some of the harder experiences I'd been through. And, and I think that that understanding is so important because I, I do think we pass down trauma to our children. You know, anything, 
I'm so interested in Carl Jung and some of his work about, you know, making the subconscious conscious. And mm -hmm. I think that if you don't analyze the past or even your parents' past, then it, you know, it can just become a pattern that continues on. So that was something I was really interested in looking into in my book. And, you know, I'm not, I wasn't absolved of, of any of it, like, you know, halfway through the book when we're living in that office building turned apartment that my mom got for us. It's, I know I start making decisions that are very much uh, ones my mother would make. And um, I wanted to sort of show the way that that creeps in in ways that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I think, as I said, in my introduction to the book, your absolute sort of dedication to truth it seems like it's it's partly as a as a way of healing and possibly kind of perhaps stopping the progression of that inherited uh generational trauma do you do you see it that way yeah absolutely i think that's why we put truth in the in the subtitle um you know i think yeah truth and and falsehood is also another theme that was interesting to me because i think that Growing up, my mother was so um, obsessed with just painting this glamorous picture of her past. And that really didn't help me much because it, it, there was so much she had left out of the story. And, um, you know, I don't think I don't think any human being is like a black and white person. We all have things that are beautiful about us and things that are challenging. And I think it's um, you have to be able to look at the, the whole picture to, to learn anything. And I, 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 yeah. And truth really does, even when the truth is really painful, I, I don't think that you, you, there's so much you don't understand until you're presented with the truth. And even in my own journey, you know, my shame about my family, um, cut me off from personal connection in such deep ways. And it's so freeing to just embrace the truth and, um, you know, from going for most of my life and until, you know, the very recent past to not telling a single person, uh, my, my history to, to then being a literal open book, you know, that's, it's hmm. such a freeing experience. And I want that for other people. Hmm. Of the many shocks uh, of this memoir, and there were quite a few, the biggest for me was when you discover that your boyfriend of that moment, Max, was likely your half-brother, the product of one of Jeffrey's many donations. Would you mind taking us through that experience? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That that was uh, a many-year uh, psychological uh, conundrum. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that yeah. is a very kind way to frame that. Um, yeah, so so it's a bit of a long story that I won't recount now. But um, but as you said, I the whole reason. So my mother discovered that my father had had this secret life donating sperm. He donated something like five hundred times over ten years. Um, so I could have anywhere between several dozen and maybe hundreds of biological siblings all over the U.S maybe the world. And my mom decided that she was going to keep this a secret from me and my sister forever. And it was only upon stumbling upon the fact that I was probably dating my half brother that she sat me and my sister down to tell us. And so it was a, uh, so I was processing all of the siblings. I was processing the fact that my father had been a sperm donor. And then I was also processing the fact that 
my boyfriend who I was actively sleeping with <laughs> was most likely biologically related to me. And so, you know, the other tricky thing was that this person had no idea that he was most likely the product of a sperm donor. Oh so I gosh. couldn't even call him to tell him <laughs> that this was going on because I didn't want to break his family secret. I didn't feel that was my place. So I don't, I, I was, you know, I went to sleep with flashbacks of us being together. I, I pulled up photos of him online to analyze his facial features. I, you know, it, it's, it was a lot, but then I couldn't, you know, then I just broke up with him and, and said that, um, you know, the, I, I mean, I forget my exact reason, but I didn't tell him until many years later. I, I wanted to protect his privacy. So I didn't get into other further conversations that had happened. Um, so I guess I leave that as a bit of a cliffhanger, but as it was for me for so many years. I, yeah, that is, I, I mean, the number of things that you had to balance in trying to process that yourself while trying to figure out what you you could bring into his existence it, while having to kind of understand that you had had likely a relationship with your half-brother. I mean, it's a wonder that you're conscious, let alone like <laughs> writing beautifully about this. <laughs> Thank you. I think. <laughs> and you, yeah, no, I, I mean, it is, it's, it's very impressive and that, um, but it also, I mean, in some ways it, it falls within my, my sense of the larger memoir, which is that you have figured out a way to be incredibly resilient. You've had your own traumas. You've had your family's traumas. You've uh, had to walk around with a, with a secret that you didn't tell for a very long time and then decide to tell it. Do you feel like there was a, um, a particular moment in your life in which you, you just said, okay, I, I, I need to be able to have a kind of internal strength to deal with this all? Um, did you draw it from your sister, from your mother? Is there a way that you remember deciding, I, I have to be resilient? Mm, I no, I think that I think that children just don't. I think when you're a kid and, and you have to become, you know, your parents' parent so young, I, I don't think that you just are aware that there's an alternative way to be. You you know, um, I do know that I got into treatment in college on accident for my eating disorder. I had many, many things that were happening at that time. I had an eating disorder. I, you know, was in a horrible, um, abusive relationship that I document in the book. I, you know, there were lots of ways that I guess you could say I was, I was acting out the dysfunction of my childhood, but, um, but I got into treatment for the eating disorder and that was my first time with a really good therapist. And I think that started the cycle of me trying to get healthy um, but you know, it took many, many, many years and I dealt with one thing at a time. Um, I don't know if that quite answers your question, but it does. Yeah, very much. The title of the book signals a really important question that you ask yourself and your readers, what constitutes normal when it comes to families? I think it would be too easy by half to just 
have a reader think, oh, well, this is such an abnormal family and I don't myself have to um, consider what it is that I think a family is. But but you really draw the reader into asking that question more broad. So do you think your experiences with your discovered siblings combined with the writing of this book has given you um, a better definition of family? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, family is whatever you make it and you've got, you know, your family of origin and then whatever family you create later. Um, I definitely struggled with the, you know, that was a, that was a sort of an open question in the book is what makes a family. Um, certainly I don't think there's any such thing as a normal family. There are some that are more functional than others, but I think we only know our own family. And one of the fun things about memoir, especially of this specific memoir genre is that we get to live inside of another family. And there were a lot of things that were really beautiful about the family that I grew up in. I'm, um, you know, my mom's enthusiasm and her deep love for me and my sister. And I have a, you know, we have a childhood friend back in the, that, you know, those days that I read you the story from, she was my little sister's best friend, Kelsey, and she's now a writer. And she said that being in our home uh, is what inspired her to want to write <laughs> during mm. play dates because she said you never knew what would happen. And it was so much fun. And her parents were so boring. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's all about perspective, I guess. There, there was, you know, it, it was never boring at, at our house. Yeah, I, I I can absolutely be sure of that myself, that it was not boring. <laughs> um, before I let you go, I'm, I'm dying to know what you've been loving reading recently and whether you have some, some recommendations in mind that you think listeners of the show might like. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, well, I'll give you... I'll give you some of my favorite reads over the last um, couple years because maybe that'll be better. I'm not I'm not particularly madly in love with anything right at this moment, but um, Beautiful Boy is one of the most beautiful memoirs of addiction that I've ever read um, by David Sheff. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that book yet, but he, I haven't. I remember hearing the the title. It's so incredible. It's written in present tense, and it's the story of this father dealing with his son becoming a drug addict. And um, it's just so visceral and powerful. And he captures what it's like to, you know, I guess that's close to my heart, what it's like to love a drug addict. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that book is incredible. I, ju I just can't, I can't recommend it enough. I also loved, I guess also in the, you know, I, I have themes that I, I go towards, I guess you could say, but Hidden Valley Road by Robert Kolker is a beautiful book. It's about 12, uh, a family of 12 kids where half of them develop schizophrenia uh, in mid-century Oh, America. yes. I remember, I didn't read this, but I remember hearing an interview about it. Uh, and and it, sucked, it sounds so fascinating. It, it's so fascinating. And also Kolker, the way, you know, just as a storyteller, the, the, the moment at which he reveals certain information, I gasped out loud at several moments in that book. And, um, and he definitely played with your perception of different characters, depending on what he told you. So I, I just think he's a masterful storyteller. So those, did, those two books. Did you borrow any of um, his uh, technique in terms of where to kind of lay big surprises in, in your own book? You know, he did have he did have a big impact on me with um, I was struggling with where to tell the story of my mother's childhood. And there was a 
version of the book when I told it very early on. But then I felt that so much had happened with her that the reader would sort of forget and then not forgive. And when I was reading his book, he does a huge reveal, I would say two thirds of the way through. And you're in a place of judgment. And then, and then this reveal just uh, shocks you into turning off that judgment. And, and I thought that was really powerful. So I would say that that did give me the idea for where I would put my mom's reveal. It also naturally flowed with when I understood certain things. So, mm. yeah. Well, those two sound incredible, and clearly, I, I I need to return to them, and 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 I hope that folks will get a chance to read them, but also to run out and buy Normal Family. It is so beautifully written. Um, it is told with such deep a deep well of empathy and willingness to experience the world from others' uh, point of view, and I just can't recommend it enough. No, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kristen. Well, that's all for me for now. My many thanks to Krista Bilton, whose debut memoir, Normal Family, is available now to purchase at our website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find Krista's book recommendations and all of our previous episodes. There's no time like the holidays for purchasing merch from your favorite podcast, and we have a fabulous t-shirt with the show's logo, which was designed by my sister. It comes in a variety of colors and is quite soft. Perfect for lounging and reading. I'm excited to share my next interview with Anna Hoagland, whose debut, The Long Answer, will surely be on your gift-giving list. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.